It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Steve Ducey. I'm Tammy Bruce. I'm Bill Hemmer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, May 20th, 2022. Alisa Brady. Inflation is digging a hole that some farmers might not be able to grow out of. We're trying to feed America. You know, all these farms are trying to feed America, and we are paying an arm and a leg to do so. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Recent mass shootings, according to law enforcement, were motivated by racism. One man knows what it's like to think like those shooters and shares how he left his hateful ideology behind. People that are doing that are very distorted and don't have a reality on life. And it leaves me with a very, very deep-seated feeling in the pit of my stomach of guilt. And I'm Kevin Walling. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. For 10 days in a row, gas prices have set records. The new all-time high, 4.58 for a gallon of regular and AAA's national average, leaving many drivers feeling drained. I wait as long as possible to get gas until I'm like very, very low because I don't want to keep getting it. 80, 90, it's getting close to $100 a, a tank. She's in Chicago, one of the many places above the national average, and diesel's even higher, 5.57 a gallon. You can imagine how quickly that adds up when you have many tanks to fill in a state where diesel has topped $6 a gallon. This is my ninth or 10th year working full time here. I started right after high school. I have never seen a fuel problem or a fuel crisis be at this level. Danny Hicks is a manager for his family's business, Sunnycrest Farms in Londonderry, New Hampshire. This is definitely eye-opening for me because I'm starting to see it all over. Like we have a lot of friends at other farms in New Hampshire and they're struggling. It's, it's a shame. It really is because we're just hardworking people and we're getting these crazy bills just so we can grow food for people. You know, it, it's a shame. Let's talk about some of those bills, because I know that you're on a 100 acre farm. What does that mean in terms of equipment? How much machinery do you guys have? Yeah. Well, we have plenty. Yeah. So we probably have around nine to 10 tractors that we constantly use. Every single different tractor has a purpose. We have ones that cultivate fields, rototills fields. We have ones that sprays fields. We got ones that spread fertilizer. We have ones that just turn on the uh, propane and diesel engines to run our uh, irrigation systems. Like we have constant machinery that uses diesel. And, you know, that's why this is becoming a problem because we constantly have to refill them. Yeah. And you you mentioned the irrigation system. So it's yeah. not just trucks that require the diesel. Yep. Our whole farm, we have about four pumps that go through other than wells. We have those ones that are connected to wells, but we also have four ponds on the property that are all through diesel pumps. And then they go through a filter system and then they spread out throughout the whole orchard to you know give water and irrigation to everything that we need to water. And that's another thing. We refill those pumps, each one, probably, I would say, about three times a day on some of those warm days. Wow. Is that a common system that's used on farms across America, as far as you know? Or is that something that farms are trying to change long term, like using other sources or other systems that wouldn't rely on diesel fuel? Yeah, you know, there has been years where we've been in droughts and are we, um, for us, for example, we have 
two wells on the property and they run very good, but you do have those years, June, July, August come around and it doesn't rain for weeks. And sometimes they get a little low. So you need to start finding water elsewhere. And I know some of our friends, farms and people we've talked to at uh, farm bureau meetings that they have also said that like, you know, like, oh, our wells, they don't pump as much because, you know, we've been in a drought. And so they do, you know, some farms do get a filter system, they get their pumps and uh, if they have ponds on the property, they'll pump out of those. Yeah. For you now, I know the the inflation isn't just the cost of fuel. You're also paying more for other things that you need to run the farm. Break down some of those costs. Yeah. So we have chemicals and fertilizer. What I say is our probably number two and number three, what we spend the most money on as a farm. And a lot of, a lot of other farms are similar. It's the diesel, the chemicals and the fertilizer. Our chemical bill is up by 50% and our fertilizer is up by 60%. And those are must-haves. You know, when you run a farm, you need to have those, especially the fertilizer. And they have to be all shipped here. And so those big 16-wheelers, they use diesel. And that is why the price is rising. And those bills, when we get them, you know, I also work for my mother. Like, my mom pays me. So, you know, handing those bills to my mom, that's that's quite the bummer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to say the least, I know the Biden administration announced they're trying to boost fertilizer production. They're also mm-hmm. boosting the number of counties that can get insurance for double cropping, planting a second crop on the same land in a single year. Will those steps have an impact for farmers? You know, it's one of those things where it's like, I try to keep up to date with everything like that. And I did hear that they were trying to boost the fertilizer and everything like that. The problem with boosting the fertilizer, that's just more money you got to pay. So that's like one of the things that we always have to watch out for because we tried to plan ahead. We tried to buy fertilizer last year and, uh, you know, it, it did work out for a little bit, but now we're going to need more. And I heard that he was trying to boost everything like that and uh, double plan and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I mean, like, I don't think it's going to be a really big problem with us, but uh, we do need all those things now. What has the government done that's been helpful that you know of, or what do you think they should be doing that could help? The honest opinion that I have, and this is just coming from me, is that I haven't seen any change or any help coming towards the American farmer. You know, things are at peak price right now, and that's that's the problem, is that we're not getting any help. We're the ones, and you know, I, you know, I have a 100-acre farm, you know, I would put us at a you know, good-sized farm, but nothing large, large. Even some of those farms that are huge that like go way to other states, they ship way more of their product, they're getting stung too. And it's a shame because all we're doing, we're trying to feed America. You know, all these farms are trying to feed America and we are paying an arm and a leg to do so. And that's like the true shame in this whole thing. And I have not seen any change. I don't think this government right now is truly helping us. Like when you have prices this big and you're a farm and you're really just trying to feed people, it's a shame to see it run this way. When it comes to selling crops, global supply and demand can come into play. For instance, the impact on wheat from the war in Ukraine. But even a rising price can be outpaced by other costs. Corn hitting a 10-year high this week. But Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts telling Fox Business that doesn't solve the problem. Having to pay for the diesel and the fertilizer and everything else it takes to produce the corn. So their, their input cost, what it costs them to actually produce the corn, has actually gone up more than the price of corn itself. Sunnycrest Farms has a variety of crops, but can they turn a profit in this environment and without passing on costs to their customers? As of right now, for us, our store opened up uh, May 1st around there, and um, it is breaking even. And that's what it is, and that's the sad truth. And, and it's until we start doing our big seasons, like for us, we're a big pick-your-own farm. We'll start seeing the money 
when pick your own strawberries, blueberries, cherries, apples, peaches, those all come in because that's a big customer based part. And that's the scary part because other farms may not have that. They may just be a commercial account. And that's the thing about farms. You don't grow fruit in the wintertime. So you have to try to get through the winter, get through the spring until you start seeing money again. And that's when it gets scary. You have to turn a profit and you have to pretty much pray that you're going to have a good season because some farms are really struggling. So that's why we really rely on having good seasons and making sure that you're growing good stuff. I know your business is also known for baked goods. Has that been impacted by inflation or supply chain issues even? Yes, that is when we order because we have a fantastic baker. Her name's Bonnie and she works in there and she, she comes in. She goes, these prices for her flour, her sugar, and like our donut mix for our cider donuts, those have doubled. The prices for those has, have even gone up. So that's why it's getting scary where we're like, you know, we are a very customer-based farm. We love having people here. The last thing we want to do is raise our prices because we want people to come here and not be like, wow, you know, why am I paying $20 for a small little thing of raspberries? And, you know, that's just an example. But you know what I mean? You know, you, you really want people to come here and not have to raise a price. But we are even seeing it in the store. Prices are skyrocketing for even our baker. What part of your business would you say has been hit the hardest? Because you do have this kind of diversification where you're pick your own, but then you have other yeah. aspects of you know, the business as well. Yeah. So I would say that it's it's got to be, you know, it all ties into the diesel, of course, this crazy high price. It's absolutely ridiculous. But it's got to be our chemical bill and fertilizer. And that's what we try to get in advance. Like, you know, we get all of our stuff April and May, like we'll kind of get all that stuff shipped up here. And we got these crazy bills at the beginning of the season. We have to pay right away. And when we get that kind of stuff right away, that's a big hit for not even having a crop ready. Now that a lot of businesses are having to raise uh, wages for employees to compete in a tight labor market. Exactly. um, What about that? Have you or anyone you know had to struggle with finding employees, being short staffed? Yes. Oh, no, we've we've definitely had that. And uh, luckily, I do come from a big family. And we have a lot of our cousins here that work here and that and thank, thank God, you know, but uh, it is true. Like even for the outside, like I'm the farmer, I'm the guy on the fields, like for the labor part of it, I'm having trouble trying to find people to come here to even mow our fields to even do simpler stuff, because you know, they want these big People want these big paychecks now. People want these high, you know, high paying hourly jobs. And it's it's crazy because not only yeah, now we're paying all these high prices for chemicals, fertilizer. Now you get to hire people that are expecting a very good paycheck. And that and it's a struggle. Like because, you know, people aren't working right now. People are trying to find work. There's a lot of trepidation in the financial markets and with the American public about inflation right now. Um, and about the effect the Fed's steps to address inflation could have on the economy. How concerned are you right now about a possible economic downturn, maybe even a recession, you know, based on what you're seeing? Mm-hmm. It's a very, very scary thought that I hope does not happen because as a farmer, you know, people do come here to our bakery and stuff. And like we feed people like, you know, all farmers in America, we feed people. And that is when it gets scary. So if we come down to a recession, a lot of these, especially smaller farms, are in big trouble. How much, it's a broad question, I know, but how much more yeah. you know, of a price increase can you handle? It doesn't, doesn't look like overall that fuel prices are suddenly going to come down and stay down anytime soon. Exactly. 
Yeah. And, and it's for us, like, you know, if I had to put it in there, you know, like if my grandfather was here and I was telling him $6 and 40, you know, I think we're at six fifty, six dollars and 60 cents for diesel. Like when we ordered in and everything like that, and we had to come get the stuff filled. Oh my God. Like that man, he would go, he would go crazy and be like, there's no way the American government would ever let diesel get to $6 and 50 cents. And I'd be like, Oh yeah, yeah, they did. Yes, they did. And we are spending everything to be able to pay, handle these kind of prices and stuff. Well, we wish you a lot of luck at Sunnycrest Farms, and uh, hopefully things will, will improve in the not-too-distant future. Danny Hicks, thank you so much for your time. It's no worries at all, and I'm sure everything will get better. you just got to stay positive, and we're just going to keep growing food over here. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. This is Kevin Walling with your Fox News commentary coming up. In recent weeks, we've seen multiple mass shootings, and at least two of them, law enforcement is investigating evidence that the suspects were motivated by racism. In Buffalo, New York, an 18-year-old is accused of opening fire inside a supermarket, killing 10 and wounding three. Most of his victims were black. The Erie County Sheriff said after the shooting, This was pure evil. It was straight-up, racially motivated hate crime from somebody outside of our community. Shortly after that shooting, Orange County, California law enforcement said a Chinese U.S. citizen opened fire at a church luncheon, killing a doctor and wounding five others. They say he was motivated by hatred for Taiwanese people. None of this is new. Sadly, the Charleston church shooting targeted black people. The Pittsburgh synagogue shooting targeted Jewish people. The El Paso Walmart shooting targeted Latinos. President Biden said from Buffalo this week. For the evil did come to Buffalo. Has come to all too many places. Manifest in gunmen who massacred innocent people in the name of hateful and perverse ideology rooted in fear and racism. The latest hate crime statistics we have are from 2020. They went up over the prior year. Though this year, the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University said hate crimes increased 46% in 2021 over the prior year after analyzing 14 major metropolitan areas. Earlier this year, the head of the Department of Justice's National Security Division, Matthew Olson, announced a new domestic terrorism unit. The threat posed by domestic terrorism is on the rise. The number of FBI investigations over the past two years since March 2020 has more than doubled. He, along with Jill Sanborn, the head of the FBI's National Security Branch, testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee in January. When evaluating the current domestic terrorism threat, we assess that racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists advocating for the superiority of the white race and anti-government or anti-authority violent extremists, specifically militia violent extremists, present the most lethal threat. She said the largest threat comes from lone actors, often radicalized online. I was born into a dysfunctional family with an alcoholic father who was a very violent alcoholic. Scott Shepard is a former member of the KKK and now calls himself a reformed racist. He would beat my mother and abuse the kids, uh, not necessarily physically with the kids, but very, you know, verbally and just uh, any, any way possible except, you know, physical. This left me with uh, low self-esteem. I didn't like anyone. I didn't like myself. I had a lot of anger in, inside. 
and I just didn't feel that, you know, I had a home or a family anymore. So I started looking for a place to fit in, and I found that in the Ku Klux Klan, you know, where I started. I, I went to uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I had a sister that lived there, and I was in her house and uh, looking at her phone book, and right there in the phone book was Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Then I found out that the Imperial Wizard, the leader, lived on EU Church Road in Denham Springs. So I went to his house and talked to him and told him what I was looking for, what I wanted to do. And he told me, he said, well, we have a rally in Tupelo, Mississippi, and you're welcome to come. And they encouraged me to come. So I did. And when I got there, the Klansmen put their arms around me. Uh, shoulders and told me, you know, we will help you and protect you and, you know, just uh, and teach me. And that's exactly what they did. They just taught me the wrong things. Scott, when you found the KKK, did you stay with them in their homes? Did you attend meetings? Like, what did you do? How did your life change? Oh, yes. We had meetings uh, on a regular basis. Uh, you know, of course, we had set places that, you know, no one knew about that we would uh, meet at. And, uh, yes, I had stayed in the houses with, you know, some of the members at these rallies that they were having. And I thought they were friends and, and family, but they really weren't. They were just, uh, you know, just tried to use me, you know, to benefit their agenda. What did you guys talk about? I mean, was it all about race? Was it all about hating certain groups? What was that like? Well, it was pretty much, you know, uh, common uh, knowledge, you know, that we hated minorities and Jewish people, uh, anybody that wasn't white. Now, when I went in, I wasn't raised by racist parents. Uh, In fact, I was raised by a black lady, Rebecca Scott Hawkins. And she was a caretaker for my grandmother. And she actually, I'm named after her. Uh, her name is Rebecca Scott Hawkins. And that's where my name Scott came from. But yes, uh, you know, we talk about different things, that, you know, the national clan groups and national office were doing and what they, you know, had planned on. Uh, attempting to try that was a negative, you know, very negative uh, actions. When you hear now about, you know, these mass shootings that are, you know, like the El Paso shooting, the church shooting and and the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting and the one in Buffalo this past weekend, you know, we often hear about accompanying like manifestos and social media posts, you know, these rantings and ravings that sort of give us insight into the anger against specific identity groups. Do you read what these shooters write? And what is your assessment of what you read? Oh, like, I, how do you feel I, when you read that? I do. I do read some that, you know, if I'm, uh, you know, fortunate enough to get a copy of it or, or find it, I do read it. And uh, the people that are doing that are very distorted and don't have a reality on life. And it leaves me with a very very deep-seated feeling in the pit of my stomach of guilt. And uh, the reason I say guilt is because I recruited a lot of young people when 
when I was in the white supremacist movement. And I used the same tactics for them that was used on myself. And I feel really guilty because of some of the people that I, you know, allowed to join and recruited. And I may have ruined their life by doing that. Scott, have you talked to Rebecca since you've reformed? Like, have you ever had a conversation with her uh, about where you ended up? Oh, sure. Uh, Unfortunately, Rebecca passed away at the age of 104 a couple of years ago. But yes, we we were real close. You know, she was my family and uh, I loved her dearly and she loved me. And Rebecca knew what I had gotten myself into. And I kind of isolated myself from her and didn't communicate with her for a long time. You know, any member of her family, because like I said, her family was my family. And I was, I did before she passed away, year, a few years before she passed away, was able to reconcile with her. And when I went to her house after being in the movement and just her reaction of opening her arms and, and grabbing me and hugging me and she told me, she said, I, I knew that someday you'd be back home. And I was glad to be home. Because you do follow the news now and you read some of the shooters, the mass shooters manifestos or, or their social media posts and, and their motivations now, and you, you do have some insight into how they're feeling. What are your thoughts about why this is happening? Why hatred and, and racism is persistent to the point where some people feel the need to act out violently. What what could be done? Well, we have a lot that are motivated by hatred. And, uh, and I'm not sure. I, I have heard that the man in Buffalo, that his parents were racist. That may have played a part in, in him becoming uh, filled with hatred and you know, getting involved in the white supremacy ideology, but it just takes it takes its toll on the people, and they just snap. You know, we call them lone wolves. People like uh, the man in Buffalo, we call them lone wolves. And the bad thing about it is that they're indoctrinated right there in their own home, sitting in front of a computer. Tell me a little bit before I let you go about, I think, the most obvious thing, right? How did you sort of deprogram? How did you get out of this mindset? Did you meet someone? Did you go to a dinner? Did you, uh, was it a moment or was it a process to sort of leave the ideology you had? Well, I think, you know, I think uh, for myself, uh, of course, it was two things. It, there was a uh, process and then there was also a, uh, uh, incident that happened that you know got you know guided me uh, out of the movement. Uh, of course, Rebecca Scott Hawkins, you know, like I said, I love you dearly. There was always this little uh, voice in the back of my mind asking, you know, saying, "Do you really believe the things that you're preaching and and doing?" Hmm. But I no, I ignored that because I was so eat up with hatred and self uh, self hatred. But when I was in Nashville, Tennessee, I was at a restaurant and I was having 
having dinner and also had some alcoholic drinks. I left that restaurant and got got about a mile down the road and uh, police pulled me over. When they pulled me over, uh, I opened the car door and there was not just one police officer, there was an ocean of blue lights. There was a lot. And I was given a field sobriety test and I failed that and also had an illegal assault rifle inside my vehicle underneath the front seat of my car. I had that and of course they sent me and took me and put me in jail. But when I went before the judge, I said, well, I, you know, I'm going to go to an alcohol and drug treatment center and get the paperwork and come back to the judge and have the charges dropped. And that's exactly what I did, and it worked. But what I didn't realize was when I went into that treatment center, I was pulled over to the side by the director. And he told me, he said, you know, we've got people of all races, uh, religion, sexual preference, you know, are you going to be able to, you know, handle that? And I said, sure, I just want to get my paperwork and go back to the judge and get charges dropped and go on with my natural, my racist life. But I didn't realize that when I walked in that door, I walked into that treatment center of one person and came out another. And that's where I think another seed was planted for me to leave the white supremacist movement. Scott Shepard, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for your time. We appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. I sure appreciate y'all having me on. everybody, it's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Kevin Walling. What's on your mind? Just six months out from the 2022 midterm elections, the heat is on for Democrats hoping to buck historic trends, while the GOP practically measures the drapes. While that may seem like a short amount of time for Team Blue to reverse some concerning trend lines with a handful of critical issues, it's also an eternity when it comes to predicting what will drive voters to the polls this fall. It's no secret that kitchen table issues, including inflation, rising gas prices, and supply chain issues, all caused by global issues stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia's war on Ukraine, are foremost on the minds of voters. But this election is likely to be decided not on these issues alone. Here are some key factors that will decide the 2022 midterm elections. Candidates matter. Elections are the politics of addition, not subtraction. The reason you can have a Democratic governor of Kansas and a Republican senator from Maine is because good candidates that can appeal to voters beyond their base win tough races. The next few months will decide whether Republicans are more focused on being competitive and safe or toss-up general elections, or if they would rather have purist, ultra-MAGA candidates who turn off right-of-center and swing voters to lose winnable races. Demographics matter. In a Wall Street Journal poll earlier this spring, Hispanic voters sent a massive shot across the bow of Democrats looking to retain control of the House in 2022. They prefer Republicans by nine percentage points. Back in November, the same poll had both parties tied. 
Even more concerning is a recent poll that found President Biden's approval rating at just 26% with this traditional Democratic voting bloc. If Hispanic voters do not turn out, or worse, vote for Republicans, it could be a very long night on November 8th for Team Blue. Endemic COVID? We now have vaccines, therapeutics, immunity from prior infection, and the country finally seems very much back to normal for most Americans. Even as cases are currently rising in some areas, hospitalization and deaths remain fairly low. From a political standpoint, Democrats cannot afford for the pandemic to come roaring back. The vast majority of Americans know that we must live with this virus, and that means keeping schools open, factories running, and supply chain strengthening. Inflation focus. There is no question that rising costs are hurting all Americans. If President Biden is able to try and stem the inflation tide and effectively contrast his plans with tax increases proposed by Senator Scott and embraced by a number of his colleagues, the potential red wave could be a mirage. History tells us that the party in the White House typically suffers losses in the first midterm of that president's election. Initial polling suggests this election will follow that trend. But if President Biden can continue demonstrating his commitment to combating inflation, reduce COVID-19 to endemic status, and hold together Team Blue's winning 2020 coalition, Democrats could buck historic midterm trends. I'm Kevin Walling, Democratic campaign strategist. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.